I'd like to say how wonderful it is to be here this morning. It is always a pleasure uh, to be with you here in, in, at La Prada, uh, to see faces that we don't get to see too often. Um, it's always a joy to be able to visit with you guys and restore and renew uh, the friendships that we have with many of you here. If I don't know you, I'd love an opportunity this morning to get to meet you or throughout the day as I'll be here uh, through the second service. Love an opportunity to meet you, get to know you a little bit. Uh, but looking forward to being able to study God's Word with you this morning and this afternoon. As you can see up on the screen, we're going to talk about the Pearl of Great Price. Now at home, I uh, go to church in the Houston area, north side of Houston at College Park, and uh, our elders assigned all of our teachers uh, different parables of Jesus over the last, I think it was uh, 2020 that, that we did that, and what they assigned me was the Pearl of Great Price. My first thought was, I'm not Truman Teal, so I'm not sure if I should be preaching on the Pearl of Great Price. Those of you who may remember Brother Truman, he had a fantastic sermon on the Pearl of Great Price. I'm not Brother Truman, not trying to be Brother Truman, uh, but I put a message together on this, this small, short parable, and it, it really is a powerful principle, I think, that Jesus is teaching here. So I do want to share some things from this parable in Matthew chapter 13 with you uh, this morning, starting in verse 45 and 46. Jesus says this, He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And so it's two verses, it's very short, it's very simple, but Jesus here teaches about this person, this merchant that is seeking pearls. He's evidently a, a seller, a buyer and seller of pearls, and he's looking for pearls, and he finds this pearl of magnificent price, and he goes and sells all of his other inventory, everything that he has, to acquire this one pearl. Now, as we look into Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is actually preaching here at the Sea of Tiberias before a great multitude. He's standing on a boat, and the crowd there is listening to him teach. And he's uh, teaching through several parables, and I want to share kind of, as you back up through uh, chapter 13, some of the different parables that he talks about. He talks about the parable of the sower and spreading the seed. Uh, He talks about the parable of the tares or the weeds and what's coming for those that aren't members of the kingdom of God. He talks about the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. And then he goes inside and he explains these parables, gives the meaning of them to his disciples. After describing the judgment day that's coming through that parable of the tares, he proceeds to then tell two very short parables, the parable of the hidden treasure, followed by this one that we're uh, studying this morning, the pearl of great price. And when we think about this pearl of great price and this teaching that Jesus has given, there's really kind of two ways that we can look at this. One, we can view this parable that as God being the merchant man, who sees us as the pearl of great price, so much so that he sent his son, sold everything that he had essentially, gave his own son to die on the cross to save us. The other view that we could take of this parable is that we are the merchantmen, that the kingdom of heaven is the pearl, and that we, in finding that pearl, the kingdom of heaven, ought to be willing to sell all that we have to acquire it. And I don't mind either interpretation, but the second one is what we're going to look at this morning. This idea that we are the merchantmen, we are in life, walking through life, seeking for satisfaction, seeking for Uh, meaning, seeking for those things that matter to us, and that when we find Christ, when we find the kingdom of heaven, that it ought to be of such importance to us that we're willing to prioritize it over everything else in our life. Uh, There's a quote that I want to read to you from Pliny the Elder. Uh, He's a Roman historian from around uh, the first to second century. He said this about pearls. He said, "...the first place and the topmost rank among all things of price is held by pearls." Their whole value lies in their brilliance, their size, roundness, smoothness, and weight. 
Pearls back in that day were considered among the most valuable jewels that someone could have. And so as Jesus is teaching and his disciples are listening to this, just simply by Jesus saying pearl, they would have immediately conjured up in their mind a great value. And then when he added on a pearl of great price or a pearl of immense value, it would have stood out to them as something far and above more valuable than anything else they could imagine. These pearls in that day were symbols of wealth and power. Pearls today are nice, but in that day they were absolutely the topmost rank among jewels. And part of that came from how pearls were actually acquired. It was very daring and very dangerous the way that pearls were actually gotten out of these oysters. They were primarily gathered from the Persian Gulf region and the Red Sea. And what they would do back in the day is they would have pearl divers that would actually hold onto a large rock, something very heavy, and then they would have a rope that was uh, connected to the, the, to the boat and a basket that they would hold onto. And so they'd have a rock in one hand, they'd have this rope with a basket on it, and they would jump off of the boat some 100 feet. They'd hold their breath and they'd sink as fast as they could with that rock down to the bottom. And when they got to the bottom, they'd find any oysters that they could find, they'd put them in the basket, and then they would just shoot up as fast as they could, obviously, to try to get breath. And the people in the boat would pull that rope up. They'd pull the basket full of oysters onto the boat. And they'd search through it and they'd see if there were any pearls in those oysters. And that was pearl diving. And many people died. It was a very, very dangerous profession. And so with it being such a dangerous profession, there were not that many pearls to go around, supply and demand. And so the wealthy were the only ones who could afford the pearls. They were very, very, uh, very, very valuable to the people in that day. And so essentially traders would go throughout the known world. I'm going to knock that sideways. Uh, traders would go throughout the known world and they would sell these, these pearls. So this merchant man that Jesus is talking about, that's, that's the idea that we have, is he is a trader of pearls, uh, someone that is dealing in these very, very valuable jewels, selling them to the wealthy. And so this is the great value that Jesus is talking about here. Three things I want to notice in this parable. One, this merchant man was seeking. Second, he recognized the value of the pearl when he saw it. And third, he sold everything that he had to acquire it. And I think this is exactly the process that you and I need to go through in our life. That we need to be seeking that in life that is really, really valuable. That that has meaning. That that really matters. And I believe that's going to be found in Jesus Christ. That's going to be found in the kingdom of heaven. And when we recognize that, that we need to be willing to sell all that we have to acquire it. And so this pearl is about the kingdom of heaven, about Christ, about the church. Now I want to ask you this morning, what is the most important thing in your life? You know, if Jesus' point here is true, that the kingdom of heaven is like this pearl of great price, that it's far and above more valuable than anything else that we could ever acquire, then we have to be willing to look into the mirror and ask ourselves this question. What is the most important thing in our life? If you're a Christian here this morning, it's especially an important question for you in the prioritization of your life, of the things that you spend your time, your effort on, the things that really matter to you. What matters the most? What's the most important? We ask this question, sometimes people say family. Family is the most important thing to me. You know, family is amazing. Family is wonderful. No offense to the rest of you, but my favorite people in this world are sitting on a pew right back over there. My family. I love my family. We make tremendous memories together. I don't want to live my life without my family. Family is immensely important to me. You're not going to hear an argument from me that family is not important. Family is extremely important. But is family the most important thing in our life? Should family absolutely be number one? And this is the answer that many people give to this question of what's most important. But the reality is at times, sometimes even our family can come into conflict with our belief in Christ and with our willingness to serve Christ in the church. There have been people that in order to become a Christian had to essentially be disowned by their families. Real people 
who lose relationships with family members when they choose to come to Christ? Are we willing to do that? Or is family number one? If family's number one, then we'll say no to Christ. We'll say no to Christianity and we'll stick with our family. But if Christ, if the church, if the kingdom of heaven really is that pearl of great price, then we should be willing to say, yes, I'll sacrifice even a relationship with a family member that doesn't understand my faith, that doesn't understand my new belief. I'm willing to do that because the kingdom of heaven really is that important. What about when we have baseball games and we have band practices, we have choir practices, we have hobbies, we have all these sorts of things we do with our family. None of those things are bad. All of those things are great. But what's the priority list in our mind? What's more important? Do we prioritize those things and make sure we're at every single practice and every single game but we miss the church ministry opportunities and we miss half of the worship services and we miss what the church is doing because really our priority isn't the kingdom of heaven. It's really our family and the different hobbies and things we're involved in. What are we willing to put first? Is family really the number one thing for you? Or is it the kingdom of heaven? You know, we ask this question sometimes. Some some people say, my job. My job is the most important thing because without my job, I can't provide for my family. I can't make a living. I can't do the things I need to do in life. My family wouldn't be taken care of. I've got to have my job and my income coming in. Jobs are important. Having an income is important. We need to work. The Bible teaches principles of work ethic and providing for your family. All of that is great, very important. But there's situations where our job comes into conflict with our faith. You know, there have been people that have been asked to move to a place where there are no churches, where there's no no Christians anywhere close for that job. And with that comes a raise, with that comes promotion. There's a lot of incentives to go do that. And that then begs a a question in our mind of what are we really prioritizing? Can we choose to to go and take that raise or that promotion, that job, and go put ourselves in a place that's spiritually not good for us? Or is the kingdom of heaven important enough that we might even deny a better job opportunity because we want to make sure that our spiritual life is what it needs to be? There have been situations where real people have been asked to fudge the numbers or be dishonest about something by their boss. And their own boss in the workplace has asked them to do something dishonest. What do you choose to do as a Christian? Is your job so important? I want to keep this job. I don't want to go against what my boss is asking me to do. And in fact, I want to curry favor with him. He's my boss. Or do we say, no, I'm a person of integrity. I'm a person of faith. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go against the belief in Christ and what he expects of me. What's truly important is job number one, or is the kingdom of heaven the pearl of great price? Some people say my health. You know, I love my family, I love my job, but ultimately I can't live a good life if I don't have my health. But there are times when we have health issues, when there are diseases that that overtake us, when there are tragedies that befold us, when, when things happen where we no longer have our health. And if our health is number one and we say, without my health, I am nothing, then when we don't have our health, guess what we are? We're nothing. We have nothing to live for. We have nothing greater than that. The reality is there is something greater than that. Our physical bodies in this physical world, it's all going to pass away. It's all temporary. What we as Christians ought really to be living for is the spiritual home in heaven. is the spiritual body that we'll gain one day. And if we prioritize the kingdom of heaven over this physical world, then we understand that even when we contract a terrible disease... Even when we get a diagnosis from a doctor that's not good, that causes us to confront our own mortality that we can put that in its proper place while not being happy about it, and while certainly grieving that news, we can understand and recognize that I'm not living for this world. I'm living for the next one. And if I go home early, then so be it. I'm still going home. 
And if we're a Christian and we believe that the kingdom of heaven is the pearl of great price, then that's the priority that we ought to be able to put on that. But yet some people say, my health is everything. What's most important to you? Some people say financial security. You know, I need to make sure that I'm saving. I need to make sure I'm investing. I need to make sure I've got all my my retirement set up. Nothing in the world wrong with that. But for some people, that is what they live for. Financial gain. The acquisition of possessions, of stuff. Very materialistic in nature. And for some people, that is what life is about. Thinking about wealth, talking about wealth, making plans surrounding the wealth that you're accruing, checking your bank account and investment account balances more than you ever seem to open your Bible or sit down and pray. For some people, the true priority in their life is money and possessions and materialism. But that comes in very direct conflict sometimes with Christ and with the church and with our service to Him. There's certainly nothing wrong with that security. There's nothing wrong. The Bible even talks about saving and investing and all those sorts of things. But that's not what life's about. Life's about something more. Because tomorrow something could happen and that wealth is gone. We could be overcome with medical bills and spend everything that we've we've saved. And then where are we left? What are we left with? If we're a Christian and the kingdom of heaven really is the pearl of great price, then we're left with the greatest of all gifts. We're still left with heaven at the end of the day. And we can trust and have faith in God and be thankful to God for that spiritual sacrifice, for that spiritual gift that we have. But if we make finances and money and materialism our number one, then when that goes away, we're left with nothing. And we're empty, just like we are if we prioritize anything else. You know, for some people, they answer this question, what's the most important? Maybe they don't even answer this directly. But what you seem to get from them, from the conversations that you're in with them, from the social media posts that you see with them, is that really what's number one for some people is their pet issues and their social causes. And those things that really at the core seem to be the only things that they ever talk about. And any conversation you have with them seems to some way navigate its its way back to that particular issue they want to talk about. You ever known anybody like that? They've just got one particular issue on their mind, it seems like, all the time. I think probably all of us know some people, and maybe we've even been guilty of that from time to time, when we're passionate about something. We get something in our mind that's really important to us. But at the end of the day, is our social cause or our pet issue or an opinion that we have about something, is that more important or more valuable than our spiritual life through Christ? And do we develop that type of reputation where we're known for that? And so I want to ask you this morning, when people think about you, and if I were to ask your friends, your acquaintances, your church family, what is Chris like? What is Sean like? What's what's important to Sean? What would they say? What would they say about you? What's most important to you? Would they say, well, they're a really, really big homeschool proponent over public school. Well, they're really, really big anti-vaxxers. Well, they're really, really, really big into wearing masks. Pick the issue. It doesn't matter. Or do they say, she's a Christian. And above all else, she loves God and the church. Do they say, he's about the spiritual. He's there when I need him. He's a friend. He loves. He cares. He's humble. She's there for me when I need her. What do they say about you? What at your core are you putting off towards your friends, your acquaintances, your church family? Is it your social issue, your social cause, your pet issue, or is it 
your love of the church? What's most important? For some people, it seems like politics is number one. And I think especially we, we saw this a little bit in 2020 with the, with the election and everything seems to become Republican versus Democrat. Everything was seen through the lens of red versus blue. And I want to encourage you to not look at everything through the lens of red and blue. But look at everything through the lens of biblical or not biblical. Look at everything through the lens of spiritually helpful or spiritually damaging. Look at everything through the, issue, through the lens of Christ and the church. Put that as your number one. And when you do that, you'll see a, a, a huge difference in what really matters, in what really gets you worked up when you watch the news or you see what's going on or you hear certain things because your priorities will have shifted. It's not all about this world. It's not all about politics. It's not all about who's in the White House or, or who has Congress right now. It's, what it's about is serving Christ and serving the church. What's most important to you? For some people, it's entertainment. It's pleasure. It's living for this world. It's anything that I can do to feel good. So people will say, yes, get drunk, get high, go be promiscuous, go have experiences. You only live once, so go live it up. And that's terrible advice. That is absolutely terrible advice. Because all that is doing is ingraining in you a mindset that's completely temporal, that's physical, that's focused on the wrong things. And you're going to end up doing things and making certain decisions that bring a lot of consequences on yourself that you're not even aware of. And you're going to pay for those for years potentially when you live with that mindset. And yet it's really easy in 2021 to want to be entertained all the time. I mean, you can look and you can see the kids with all of the electronic devices. I didn't get a cell phone until I was 16, and I started driving. I'm not saying you have to be 16, but now there are six-year-olds with cell phones, and they're sitting there on them, and they're playing on them all the time. Or it's a tablet, or it's some other electronic device, or they're sitting there in front of the screen, the TV, watching show after show after show after show, being entertained. Because life somehow, for a lot of people, has become about being entertained. Anytime I hear my son, he told me this the other day, he, you know, whatever we were doing, we were eating, just doing something simple or whatever, and he goes, when are we going to be done? I'm bored. I said, I don't want to hear you say I'm bored, because there's a lot of things I can figure out for you to do if you're, if you're truly bored. But if you can't sit here for 10 minutes and not be bored, there's a problem. Life is not about entertainment. It's not about being pleasured and entertained all the time. You know, when it comes to the kingdom of heaven, if it really is the pearl of great price, then we recognize as Christians what we should be about is we should be be about honoring and glorifying God in what we do. We should be about worshiping in the way that God has asked us to worship. Living our life each and every day at work and at school the way that God would have us to do that. And sometimes that doesn't bring us the immediate pleasure or entertainment physically like some of these other things might. But it does bring us long-lasting happiness and joy and contentment that those other things will never give you. Those other things will feed the temporary, immediate desires. And when it's done, you'll want more and you'll never be satisfied. But when you live your life prioritizing Christ and the church, the spiritual life, not the physical one, you'll find a joy and a peace and a contentment that will last. And it will bring you truly a level of happiness that you can't imagine. And finally, we ask this question, what's the most important thing in your life? Some people might say education. It is most important to me that my children are educated, that they go to a great school, that they get a great degree. I'm not against education. Me and my wife both have college degrees. I'm going to encourage my children to get degrees for a purpose, for a reason. They're a means to an end. 
Not because I want them to have some experience. Because it's a means to an end, to a good life, to providing for their families. And there's reasons to to go to school. And nothing against going to a great school. But there are some people that have prioritized their children's education to the point that they have sent them off to an Ivy League school where there is no church and no spiritual family. And they wonder why years later when the child moves back they don't want to attend church. And instead they've taken to the ideas and philosophies of the world and they've been changed and their belief system has been changed. And so then years later as you're visiting with those parents and you're talking about what's happened in their lives and their children's lives and all they can come up with is, well, they, they, they have a great job and they're, they're doing this and we're, we're, we're proud of them for the education that they have. And they haven't darkened the door of a church in 20 years. That's not going to be the case all the time, obviously. But the reality is we need to balance every decision, including our children's education, with what is the spiritually most beneficial way to do that. And not make, make sure that we're not putting them in a position that's dangerous spiritually just for the sake of a great education. There are cheaper schools that are closer, that have congregations, that are good, strong congregations. There's a lot of, 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 of church kids that go to different schools in these cities that have a good, strong congregation near them. Um, Anywhere in Dallas, obviously you guys know, here and several other congregations that are good, strong congregations. If my son wants to go to college here, I have no problem with him coming here because I know there's churches that will take him in and support him and help him, including this one. And that's the mindset that I believe that as Christians we ought to have if the kingdom of heaven is truly the pearl of great price. Or is that great... Ivy League education 2,000 miles away, is that really your pearl? What's more important? Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24, Jesus said unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Matthew 6, 24, he said, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Matthew 19, 21 and 22, this is the story of the rich young ruler that comes up to Jesus, asks what he needs to do. Jesus says, go and sell all that you have. Jesus said to him, if thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast and give to the poor and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. In Matthew 6, verse 33, Jesus said, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. All of these verses, that we could keep reading verses where Jesus talks about this, but he's talking about this conflict that that comes between a physical mindset and a spiritual one, a materialistic mindset and a spiritual one, one where we have to be willing to sacrifice, to submit to him first, to put ourselves second. There are going to be things in life that you want, that you have to be willing to sacrifice for Christ. And you're not always going to have to sacrifice everything. This doesn't mean that as Christians tomorrow we have to go and literally sell everything that we have and live on the street and have nothing to give. That's certainly not the case. And we can look at Acts and the examples there. Uh, Acts 2 through 5 where they were selling things and they were bringing them. They, did, they were not required to do that. While it was theirs, it was theirs to do with what they wanted. And we could go and we could study that. Certainly not telling you have to go sell everything tomorrow. What I am telling you is that you should be willing to sell everything tomorrow. If it means protecting your spiritual life, if it means going to heaven, if it means holding Christ and salvation above all, then you should be willing to give it all up. And what that means in practicality for most of us is it means choosing to do the small decisions differently than we have a tendency to do. 
Because the reality is most of us aren't going to face that one big giant decision that says we either have to sell everything that we have or walk away without salvation. Most of us don't, fight, don't face that. We live in a country where we still have a lot of freedoms to worship and to believe as we believe and very thankful for that. So most of us are not going to face that big one critical decision. But we are going to face a series of decisions every day that speaks to where our priorities are and where our heart is. And in those little decisions, those decisions of whether to speak with integrity or not, those little decisions of whether to to take that extra shift even though it's on a Sunday, or to say, no, I'm going to be at church, those little decisions of prioritizing Christ in the church, that's what I want to encourage you to do, to seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and trust that these other things that we have need of, that we will have and they will be provided in our life. And if they are not, and if we die destitute, Ultimately, we still have a home in heaven if we stay faithful to God. And that's what life's about. So what it, or why is the kingdom of heaven the pearl of great price? I want to share with you a few reasons why I believe it really should be the most important thing in your life. And first and foremost, it's salvation. It's eternal life. It starts and ultimately ends with this. Salvation cannot be measured. The value of eternal life simply cannot be compared against anything else that we have in this life. And and so it's impossible to put put a price tag on how valuable salvation is. But ultimately, this is where it starts and this is where it ends. For years, mankind has been asking the big questions of why we're here. What is our purpose? What What is our meaning? And ultimately, in salvation, we find the answer. We find the answer to those questions. And the answer is that we glorify and honor God in our life. That we share that message of salvation that God has so graciously given to us with others. And help them to come to Him. Help them to gain an eternal life just like we have. Ultimately, we are here to live for a short time to ultimately transition into an eternity in heaven with God, with past loved ones who were also faithful, with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit, etc. We have an amazing home awaiting for us. And our purpose, our meaning is to live this life prioritizing that one and sharing that message with as many people as we can and then transition into that wonderful place called heaven. But I want to give you some other reasons why I believe, too, that the kingdom of heaven really should be number one in your life. Not only from the salvation standpoint where it starts and ends, but also because of the moral standard that we're given through our faith in Jesus Christ. You know, some people say, isn't a moral standard restrictive? Right? That sounds like a list of things that we can and cannot do. But a moral standard that we've been given through the Scriptures is really not a list of restrictions. What it is is a guidebook. It's a guidebook for how to live a happier, more successful life, a better life, a healthier life. And this is not a prosperity gospel. I'm not saying you won't have challenges and your life will all be be roses as a Christian. We certainly know that that's not true. But the reality is when we follow the moral standard of the Bible, our lives are quantifiably better. And I want to give you a few examples of why uh, that is. And we we could use a lot of them. But according to the World Health Organization, there are more than 30 sexually transmitted diseases, including bacteria, viruses, and parasites. One of those is the disease HIV. Over 75 million people have been infected by HIV, and over 32 million people have died. Now, I just want to ask this, this simple question for us to use our, our common sense and, and our brains to recognize. If all people in the history of mankind had followed the moral standard found in Scripture related to how we treat one another, related to, our, uh, to sexuality being saved for marriage, and those sorts of concepts, if all people across all time had done that, would HIV exist? Would these other sexually transmitted diseases exist? 
and maybe if, even if we can't say with a certainty that they would absolutely would not exist, possibly ever, I think we can absolutely say they certainly would not be anywhere nearly as prevalent or as damaging as they are today. But some of these diseases and things are here, and they, they have killed millions of people and made millions more suffer simply because mankind has not chosen to live according to the moral standard. This is just simply one example of where living according to the moral code that God outlines in Scripture helps us to live a quantifiably, in this case, healthier existence in life, away from the dangers that these diseases uh, can bring to us. Another example would be abortion. There have been over 61 million abortions in the United States since 1973. I think abortion is one of the great tragedies of American culture. And I think for years and decades, I think eventually the rest of this country is going to catch up to recognize the immense tragedy that has taken place in all of these lost lives. But I want us to recognize here this morning, if all people across history had followed the moral standard of the Scripture that believed in the sanctity of all life, then there would be 61 million more people alive today, plus their offspring. There would be millions and billions, potentially, of additional people that had not died as a result of a deviation from God's standard. And my point is this, we could keep naming example after example, but the reality is when we choose as a society, as as a race of human beings to do things contrary to God's will, there are consequences to that. There are consequences to our health. There are consequences to some people's very lives. But when we choose to follow that moral standard, we're not going to face those same problems and those same challenges. We're going to face people that are kind and treat us kind like Christ would treat us instead of people that want to harm us or do evil to us. And we can see the example of that in, in, in everyday life and in many examples that we could talk about. But the reality is, while we can't control the world, we can't stop all abortions. I can't stop all abortions from happening. I can't stop people from making decisions in their personal life that are sinful and that could be harmful to them. What I can do is I can share the message of Christ in love. I can do that all day, every day. I can do that with everyone that I'm around. I can love people. I can treat them like Christ would. I can share with them the truth of the Scriptures. I can share with them eternal life and try to help them mold their life after Christ. That I can try to do in my small world with the people that I can influence. And you can do that too. And that's one of the reasons why I believe that the kingdom of heaven really is the pearl of great price is it because it will change people's lives. Not only spiritually and for eternity, but here it will make their lives better. And I truly and 100% believe that. The biblical standard of morality would effectively eliminate violence. It would eliminate domestic abuse. It would eliminate child abuse. It would eliminate sexual abuse. It would eliminate pornography. It would eliminate racism. It would eliminate drug abuse, alcohol abuse, and most, if not all, free will-based societal problems. If the whole world followed the moral standard given in Scripture, what a wonderful place that would be. We know it's not reality. We know that's not going to happen. But we do also know that we've been given a charge as Christians. Number one, to live this way ourselves according to that moral standard because it's better for us, but then to share that with others because it's better for them. We can create this, at least in a small way, in our own world if we'll live it out and we'll be true to our belief and we'll really make the kingdom of heaven the pearl of, our, uh, our, the pearl of great price. 
Number three, why I believe the kingdom really is that pearl and should be number one in our life is the family structure given in Scripture. It creates stronger marriages and better equipped children. One man, one woman in the bonds of marriage, often producing children as a result. This is God's design. He's asked the father to lead the home and to love his wife. He's asked the wife to respect and submit to her husband. He's asked parents to raise their children in a godly way with a godly focus, to parent well, seeking to raise godly, mature adults that will then do the same thing in their families with their children. And yet this family structure that has been given to us by God has been under attack for years in our country, in this world. The U.S. divorce rate is at about 50%, and the top five reasons why marriages split today include infidelity, money, communication, fighting, and abuse. Yet I want you to consider that if husbands and wives are committed to being godly, are committed to fulfilling their family roles as God has outlined them, we wouldn't have infidelity in marriage because that wouldn't be an option for either the husband or the wife. We wouldn't have money problems too big that we couldn't overcome them because materialism wouldn't be what we're living for. We'd be living for the spiritual life. We wouldn't have communication issues because we would recognize the importance of loving and respecting one another and listening and conversing with one another. We wouldn't have fighting, arguing, or abuse going on in homes because we would recognize that that's not right, that that's ungodly, and that it's not good for us, for our home. And yet, what we see in reality is that marriage is split apart for these very reasons. And these very reasons are anti what God's Word tells husbands and wives and families to be. So the reality is, if we'll simply follow that family, and I don't want to put it like it's simply, like there's not challenges. There are challenges in marriage. There are challenges in raising kids. But if you follow that structure, you build your house according to that structure that God has outlined, then a lot of these issues are, they either go away or they're a lot easier to work through. Because all of you are committed to putting Christ first. If the husband in the marriage, though, is committed to the husband first, to putting himself first, well then, of course, he's going to commit sin or do things that he shouldn't do or choose to walk away. If the wife in a marriage puts the wife first and herself first before her husband, before God, then she's going to prioritize the selfish things that she wants. But if both husband and wife put Christ first, they're not going to prioritize themselves. They're not going to follow after their sinful pleasures. They're going to be doing what's best for each other in that marriage blessed by God. The reality is, if we'll simply follow that standard, it will make life a lot easier for us in our marriages. And you know, there are consequences not only to the husband and wife when a marriage splits apart, but obviously to the children as well. Children in those uh, homes that are broken apart are now confused. Uh, Many times they see different standards taught depending upon whether they're at mom's or they're at dad's. Many kids end up being uh, in single-parent homes. And I'm going to look at some consequences of kids that are raised in fatherless homes. Now, I believe that the same, uh, there there are consequences as well when you look at the studies uh, with motherless homes as well. But I want to look at the importance of having both a mother and a father in the home. There's a crisis in America. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, 19.7 million children, more than one in four, live without a father in their home. Consequently, there is a father factor in nearly all of the societal ills facing America today. Research shows that when a child is raised in a father-absent home, he or she is afflicted in the following ways. They're at four times greater risk of poverty. They're more likely to have behavioral problems. They're seven times more likely to become pregnant as a teenager. They're more likely to face abuse and neglect. 
They're two times greater risk of infant mortality. Uh, they are more likely to go to prison. They are more likely to commit crime. They're more likely to abuse drugs and alcohol. Uh, they're two times more likely to suffer from obesity. And they're two times more likely to drop out of high school. And these are... Uh, this is a secular study. These are secular statistics. This is not anything that's, uh, that's meant to encourage the Christian belief system necessarily. But even our secular society recognizes that the best thing for children is to have a mother and a father in the home raising them together. And isn't it interesting that societally, the studies that we do secularly match up with exactly the structure that God has outlined in Scripture? Because the structure that God has outlined is that important. Now we recognize that there are tragic issues where one spouse dies or a tragic issue where one spouse decides to be selfish and walks away. And there are single parents that are good, godly Christian people that are doing their best every day to raise their children. And we applaud you and support you. And as a church family, our church family should wrap your arms around those folks and make sure that they have as much support as possible. But those that I know that are single parents, that are good, godly people trying to raise their family in a godly way will still say, I'm doing everything that I can do. I, you know, I believe I'm doing my best. But it would still be better if my kids had both parents. Both parents focused on God. Both parents there in the home raising them. It essentially puts both roles on one person to do in the home. And it's not ideal. Now, if you're in that situation this morning, God bless you. Keep doing everything that you need to do and rely on your church family to help you and to support you and stay strong and keep doing what you're doing. But at the end of the day, we have to recognize the structure of a godly man and a godly woman in a marriage raising children together is the best way to accomplish good, godly, mature adults. And if you're thinking about getting married and you're in that phase of life, make sure that you're looking for someone that will be godly and focused on the same things when it comes down to it. It's easy to not think about children, not think about all those big issues that are, that are going to happen down the road as you're getting ready to enter into a marriage, but I want to encourage you to think about it. Think about the next 10 and 20 and 30 and 50 years of your life. Think about being with that person. And is that the type of person that puts Christ first? Can you build your marriage with that person on the principles of Christ? If you don't and you find yourself in this situation, it's not only a consequence for you, it's a consequence for your children. And so I want to encourage each of you, no matter where you are in your marriages or in your family relationships... To start from this point on, there's nothing you can do about the past. There's nothing you can do about what other people have decided to do. You can't control other people. What you can control is you. And just do your best to be who God is asking you to be in your family today. And it will help you. And that's one of the reasons why I believe that the kingdom of heaven is that pearl of great price. is because of that family structure and the church that's also around those families supporting them. And that's my next point. I believe that one of the reasons why the church, the kingdom of heaven, is so important and should be number one in your life is because of the community that we gain. The friendship, the love, and the support that we have. When we struggle, when we have issues, we have people that we can rely on. I want to show you this chart. It's a simple chart, but I like the chart. It shows average number of daily positive and negative emotions by church attendance. Okay, that blue line is showing you negative thoughts that people have every day. On the left side, you'll see a person that never goes to church... And then span towards the right, you'll see seldom going to church once a month, almost every week, at least once a week. And notice what happens to that blue line. 
the daily number of negative emotions and thoughts that people have across the board when they go to church. The more church they go to, the less negative emotions they have. Isn't that interesting? And then that green line, this is from Gallup. That green line there on the left as well shows the number of positive emotions a person has when they never go to church. And then increasing the amount of church that they go to, guess what happens to that green line? It goes up. What we see is that when people are around their church family, they're worshiping together, they're supporting one another, they've got friendships here, they've got family here. Church family, blood through Christ, that they're walking through life with, that that helps to reduce negativity, to increase happiness and positive thoughts and emotions. Who would have thought it? Going to church and being around good Christian people would encourage us to be happier, healthier people. That's what the statistics say. And you and I know that. We didn't need the blue and green lines to tell us that. But it's just interesting to me that the blue and green lines told us that. Exactly what we would expect from God's Word. I believe that there is no better community than church family. And I want to share a personal story with you this morning of one of the reasons why I believe that. Several years ago in 2013, me and my family lived in Harlingen, Texas, which is basically as far south as you can go before hitting Mexico. My family, I grew up in Houston. My family was there. Uh, My wife grew up in the Panhandle, Plainview area. Her family was up there. We were four days away from moving to Houston. We had been down in Harlingen about three years, uh, and we were four days away. We literally had our apartment about a quarter of the way packed up, and we were supposed to be picking up a, a truck about three days from then, loading it up, and then heading to Houston. Instead, on that day, four days from the move, I got a call. I got a call that my mom was in an accident and she passed away. Now, when that happened, we loaded up in the car and we drove to Houston. I needed to be with my family. That's where I needed to be at that moment. Um, And we walked through the next few days with with prepping the funeral and, and the difficulty and hardship that that was. But in addition to all of that, in the back of my mind, I knew I had an apartment sitting down there six hours south that our lease was about to be up on, all of our stuff is sitting there, my extra car is down there. I don't know how that's going to work, what I'm going to do. I don't care at the moment. I was where I needed to be. I needed to be with my family. But at the same time, I knew all my stuff's down there, and I didn't know what was going to happen. The congregation at North 7th Street in Harlingen, without telling us or asking us, they went over to our apartment, they packed up the rest of our stuff, went through everything, got it all in boxes. They voided the the payment on the truck that I was supposed to go pick up three days later. They paid for a moving truck. They brought that moving truck to our apartment. They loaded all those boxes and our couches and all of our stuff up into that truck. They got my spare key and they drove that truck with all of our belongings and my spare car up to Houston. They also cleaned the apartment from top to bottom so that we could get our deposit back. And the guy who drove the truck up there, he got there and he came to me and he handed me the keys and he said, it's taken care of. Don't worry about it. It's all done. And I can't tell you to this day what that means to me. Eight years later, I still think about that and I get emotional when I think about the amazing church family that was down there that knew we were going through a very difficult time and that we had stuff that needed to be done. And they said, we'll do it. We got your back. And they did. And that's why I believe that there's no, no community better than church family. Because I don't know who else. Maybe there's great people out there that would do that. But I know my church family will. And I know that 
especially based upon that and what's happened with me, if I see a need like that, I will. And I hope you will. And I hope you recognize the immense blessing that your church family is. There's no greater community than church family. And that's one of the reasons why I believe the kingdom of heaven is the pearl of great price and should be for you. When you don't participate, when you don't engage, when you only come every now and again, and you prioritize all the other stuff in your life, you're not going to see the immense blessings that comes from really becoming family with these people. When you choose to integrate in and be engaged and become one of the family, you're a part of the greatest family that there ever was and ever will be. And that's a family that will not only exist here, but will exist in eternity. Finally, as we close this morning, I believe the kingdom of heaven is the pearl of great price because of the comfort, the contentment, and the peace that we are given in life's difficulties. Back when that happened, when my mom passed away, that, those next few days, weeks, months, and year were the hardest of my life that I have lived to this point. But there is one thing that I always remind myself of anytime that I am that I'm sad, and I remind myself that my mom was a faithful person who believed in Jesus Christ and lived her life for him. And if I'll be a faithful person and live my life for him, I know I'm going to have an opportunity to see her again. I know that the last time that I spoke to her was not the last that there will ever be. I know that there's a resurrection day coming, a reunion day coming, where I'll see her and all my other loved ones again that have died in Christ. And you don't get that when you're not in Christ. You sorrow as the world sorrows. When someone passes away, when tragedy befalls, it's easy to believe that that's the worst thing that can ever happen because there's nothing more to life except this life. But when you're a Christian, when you're a member of the church, when the kingdom of heaven really is the pearl of great price for you in your life, then you have access to so much more hope and contentment and peace knowing that though her life here is over, it's not over. And though my life one day here will be over, it won't be over truly because we have an eternity to spend with one another. And that goes back to that first point of salvation and eternal life. It starts and it ends with that. This morning, I want you to know that God's desire for you is that you would be rich. He says in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor that ye through his poverty might be rich. God wants you to be rich, but he doesn't care about your richness and possessions. He doesn't care about how much money you have in the bank account. He doesn't care about that type of richness. He wants you to be rich in what matters, in the eternal life that is granted through Jesus Christ, in the forgiveness of sins that you can have, no matter what you've committed, no matter what you've done in your life, he will forgive you of those things. You can have those things washed away. He wants to give you peace and contentment during those difficult times of life that we all will face. He wants to give you a family that will support you and be there for you, that will be the greatest family that you've ever had. He wants to give you a better marriage and a better life raising your children, following after the standard and the structure that he's given. All of that he offers. He wants you to be rich. You have the opportunity to be rich, to be rich in what matters to make the kingdom of heaven the most important thing to you, to make it your pearl of great price, being willing like that merchant man in the parable that Jesus spoke about, 
being willing to sell all that you have to put everything else second, to acquire it and to keep it. And that's my encouragement to you this morning. Think about your relationship with God and your relationship with Christ. If you've not begun that journey, begin it today. Start your walk with Him. Grab salvation. It's being offered. If you're a Christian here this morning, make sure that you're prioritizing Him. Don't put family or job or health or or pet issues or social causes or politics or anything else above Christ. Make yourself put those things second and Him first and you'll see the benefits that come in your life. God wants to make you rich, but not rich in this world, rich in the next one. Let Him. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. I leave the message with you this morning. If you're here and we can assist you in any way, we would ask that you come sit on our front pew as we stand and sing.